have your Bibles, let's hold those up together. I'm a child of God. <clears throat> have in my hand the powerful Word of God. It can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Here's our prayer. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Give a high five, pound your neighbor there. Encourage your neighbor, would you? And look at them and tell them everything's going to be all right. Would you do that? <clears throat> You'll know why I'm going to say that to you in just a minute. <clears throat> I want to thank you all for your prayers. had surgery last Wednesday. I should be in a sling, but I refused. I, I refused to wear my sling to preach. I'll probably regret it later. <clears throat> and my wife's giving me that look like, yeah, I'm going to hurt you bad. So if you want me to wear my sling, bring it up here and I'll put it on. Okay, good. I knew I could embarrass her and that would work out okay. So if I start to raise this arm too much, just so, and I'll raise this arm, okay? So if, if I'm a one-arm, if I'm a one-arm excited preacher, that's going to be over here today. <clears throat> surgery went great. <clears throat> I've had no pain in my uh, arm and from the surgery <clears throat> other than the day that I actually tore it loose from, from my shoulder. So I praise the Lord for that. Oh, okay. Well, my son's going to make me take my jacket off. All right. Okay. Very good. Uh, I'll surrender. All right. Here we go. No, just a hug from you. Well, actually, Megan, I'm going to leave you back there. Okay. Here we go. I asked the doctor Friday night at the football game, do I have to wear this? And he said, yeah. I said, but I, just, I see you Monday. He goes, okay. <laughs> so maybe Monday I won't have to wear this anymore. So there you go. Everybody happy now? Okay. All right. Sooner or later, sooner or later, it's going to happen to you. Calamity. Someday calamity will come, and it will crash into your life. Sometimes there is that forewarning. But sometimes it just explodes under your feet. But we all must take our turn at facing it and experiencing it. Life can go from zero to panic attack in seconds. And if you understand what I'm saying. Your whole normalcy can be wrenched into abnormal instantly. And really the question of the hour is, and in that moment, what will you do? What will you do? On the evening of February 25th, 2007, Christian author Philip Yancey was driving his Ford Explorer from Los Alamos, New Mexico to his home in Denver, Colorado after a busy weekend of speaking. He was thinking about his wife Janet and the wedding of one of their friends that they were attending in just a few days. And in the fading light, he didn't notice a sharp left curve ahead. Traveling about 65 miles an hour, he tried to negotiate that curve when his vehicle began fishtailing. Yancey describes his moment this way. I tried to correct, but as best as I can, can reconstruct what happened, my tire slipped off the edge of the asphalt, asphalt onto the dirt. That started the Explorer rolling over sideways at least three times and probably more. Amazingly, the vehicle stopped right side up. 
All windows were blown out. Ski, the skis, boots, laptop, computer, and suitcases were strewn over 100 feet or so in the dirt. And when emergency personnel arrived, they strapped him to a rigid bodyboard and immobilized his head for the hour-long ride to the town of Alamosa, Colorado. The early images of Yancey's neck revealed pulverized C3 vertebrae. The emergency room surgeon told him that the brake didn't touch his spinal cord, but likely punctured critical arteries that serve his brain. Just hours before, Philip Yancey was on his way home to his wife of 37 years, and now he laid alone in the busy emergency room of a small community hospital, wondering if he would live beyond the next day and the next few minutes. Just after her baby was born, Nancy Guthrie knew that something was wrong. All the plans and dreams shifted when Hope was born with club feet, extreme lethargy, and an inability to suck, among other problems, all symptoms of Zellweger disease and syndrome. That's a disorder that causes the body to retain the toxins it normally throws off. Hope would live for 198 days. In the meantime, it was discovered that Nancy and her husband both had the recessive gene for Zellweger syndrome, and the Guthrie's decided David would have a vasectomy to prevent other pregnancies. But one year later, after Hope died, Nancy was pregnant again. Prenatal testing revealed their next child would have Zellweger syndrome. Gabriel was born on July 16, 2001, and they knew what to expect. Their son's best day would be his first day. You know, that's how it happens. You're going through a, your ordinary life with its predictable rhythms, and suddenly you're sideswiped by crisis. You hear the ambulance siren as it, it grows louder and louder. You've heard that sound many times before, but this time, this time, it's headed for your house. And that very moment seems surreal, disjointed from reality. Things that were important just minutes before are completely irrelevant now. The telephone rings and you answer with no idea what is about to happen to your life. And right after you say hello, the caller tells you the news. You stand there in body-numbing disbelief as you hear that one of the most cherished people in the world to you is gone. There wasn't even time to say a final goodbye. There's a knock on the door and you open to a man calling your name and then hands you a legal document and a clipboard for you to sign, acknowledging your receipt of the document. You can feel time stand still as you take the pen to sign your name. You, you knew that your marriage was in trouble, but you had no idea. You scribble your name, you shut the door, and you can hardly breathe. Some of you haven't had one of these gripping type experiences yet. Others of you have or know somebody that has or something similar. You know that sense of desperation, so gut-wrenching you can't breathe. There's nothing you can do about what's happening. You, you feel weak, vulnerable, and afraid. And So what do you do? 
Where did your mind take you? Was it in a free fall or did you have something to hang on to? Someday, trauma will walk into your life and it will slap you upside the head. These are times when you and I need rock-solid things that do not and will not change. And we need them nailed down before that crisis strikes. And you will have in those defining moments, what you will have in those defining moments is what you had before it hit you. Over the next several weeks, I had a whole different series ready to start today. But with what's going on around us, I thought, you know, we need six bedrock, solid, foundational truths that we can grip hold of. And so today I want to start with them, and we'll finish somewhere down the road here. But I hope to give you hope. I want to give you something to latch on to, because you may be in the grips of trauma right now. I'm going to give you six things. Jeff, there's a, there's, go back to that first slide where those, uh, those were listed. We're going to look at God is God. The Bible is God's Word. I'm a sinner. Jesus is the answer. You can't earn a gift. And I'm going to talk about you and the church over the next few weeks. But we're going to open that trauma toolbox and see what, what's in there, what tools we can hang on to and use to get us through. Let's pray together. Father, I just ask you to bless the thoughts and words today open the hearts of your folks here today lord i know there's people in this room this morning that are struggling i know there's people in this room that are that are facing tremendous crisis i I talked to one young man this morning that went into work friday and he was the new kid on the block and so now he doesn't have a job father there's that going on all over this country Father, I was talking to another young man this week that, that was talking about how his, uh, or just in the last week or so, how his, his boss was just so frustrated and just seemed to be so angry. And uh, later, this young person in our church found out that his boss had lost over a million dollars in the Wall, Wall Street and stock market junk that's going on. God, we're living in perilous times. But there's one truth and one tool in our toolbox that we can always hang on to, and that's your cross that never changes and never goes out of style. And you've got it all under control. In Jesus' name, amen. What's the most important truth, the important truth that you will ever hear? What is that overarching thought that commands every dimension of your life and thinking between now and the day you breathe your last. Until we get this first thing nailed down, the inevitable crisis can be our undoing and will be our undoing. Fix this, however, in your life and your purpose is defined and your peace certain. Basically, to say it as the psalmist did in Psalm 100 and verse 3, the Lord, He is God. 
When you get that settled in you, you've got it. How many of you believe God worries? God worries. How many of you believe that God worries? How many of you believe that we have to worry for Him? Come on. I've got to look. Come on. Laugh a little bit. Come on. I had a dear sister tell me that. She said, I know I'm not supposed to worry, brother, but God does it and I have to for Him. <laughs> so, you know, there's, some, there's truth there, isn't it? Not so much that He needs us to worry for Him, but we do. We have concerns. And pure and simple, living right here in, in North America, being a Christian here, it's easy to believe in the existence of God. It's no big deal. In fact, over the years, the polls have reported that 90% of us say that we believe in God. But when we're suddenly pushed over that edge or out of our comfort zones into chaos, our easy claims come up empty. Any of you lose in the stock market recently? You can lose a lot. You can lose a whole lot. But it wasn't so for Isaiah. When Isaiah faced a personal crisis, his testimony and actions show us a man who had this truth nailed down. We read these verses earlier. Now I hope you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 6 because we're going to look at those verses again throughout the morning message. So please, Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to be at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and His robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above Him. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. This first phrase defines the crisis for Isaiah and for Judah, which was the southern kingdom of what would now be the divided Israel. King Uzziah, who had ruled over Judah for 52 years, was dead. But so often we will just skip right past that thought that King Uzziah was dead. Don't want you to skip by there too quickly, too casually. Some of us can remember the feeling. I can remember the feeling I had. You probably can too when the TV said President Kennedy is dead. It changed everything about our country and about our world. Do you remember where you were? On 9-11, 2001. Most of you remember that one. That changed forever. What happens in America? It changes forever. And will keep changing forever. Because what it said was, America is vulnerable. The bad boys can get to us. And they can get to us from within. When you let the cross out of things, and when you leave God out of things protection's going to move protection's going to move so if you're leaving him out of your life if you're not leaning on him through every phase of your life oh be careful oh be careful only in Isaiah's case 
it was really worse. The throne of David was vacant at the worst possible time. Rumors of mighty Assyria's rise to power had been circulating for years. Stories of their bulldozing armies traveled on the wind. Assyria now, sensing its moment with Judah, was on a march, drawing near even as Judah was staggering as a nation. Everyone was preoccupied with world news and updates on Assyria. Dread and terror crawled up inside every citizen of Israel's heart and Judah's heart. Isaiah's world was literally falling apart. But then he saw God for who He is and never again mentions His King. What is it that Isaiah learned in these four verses? What is it that he learned? What is it that he saw? And what helps you and me today? Seven things. We want to go through them real quick. Number one, God is alive. God is alive. Uzziah is dead, but God lives on. Psalm 90 and verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. God was the living God when the universe exploded into existence. He was the living God when Socrates drank his poison. He was the living God when William Bradford governed Plymouth Colony. He was the living God in 1966 when Thomas Aldezer proclaimed Him dead and Time Magazine put it on the front cover. He will be living ten trillion ages from now when all the puny pot shots against His reality will have sunk into oblivion like BBs in the Pacific Ocean. Look at this verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, what does he say? I saw the Lord. Underline that. Highlight it. Circle it. There is not a single head of state in all the world who will be there in 50 years. The turnover in world leadership is 100%. In a brief 110 years, this planet will be populated by 10 billion brand new people. And all 6 billion of us will be long gone like King Uzziah. But, not God. He never had a beginning, which means He depends on nothing for His existence. He always has been, and He always will be, alive. Alive, alive, alive. I'll pause and let you say amen. Good. Number two. God is alive. Number two, God is in charge. Look back at our verse. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. On a throne. No vision of heaven has ever caught a glimpse of God plowing a field or cutting grass or filling out reports or loading a truck. Heaven is not coming apart at the seams, barely holding out against its attackers. God is not having to catch a second job to meet ends meet. He is never at wit's end with His heavenly kingdom He sits on a throne. All is at peace there. Absolutely He's in control. 
The throne describes His right to rule the world. We do not give God authority over our lives. We do not make Him Lord. He is the Lord. Exercising authority whether we like it or not. We're smarter if we surrender. But He's going to be that whether we allow Him to or not. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that there's no temptation that's overtaken us. But such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. But will with that temptation provide a way of escape. So that we can bear up under it. Does he, does he say, I'm going to take the buffet away from you, preacher? No. He gives me the strength to go to a different restaurant. There we go. I was going to try to catch up with you. There you go. He's not going to take the chocolate cake off the table. He's going to do what? He's going to put you there to make sure I don't get it. I get it. <laughs> Somebody said, put ice cream by it. What are you doing? <laughs> preach it, brother. Preach it. Okay. As the fat sales thing. Hallelujah. All right. But the temptation, that's not the problem. It's my yielding to it that's the problem. And God said, I'll be there with you. He's in charge. Number three. He's alive. He's in charge. Number three, he is omnipotent. Oh, I love that word. That's one of those Bible words and you go, omnipotent. And you go, what does that mean? What is omnipotent? The throne of His authority is not one among many. It's high. Look, Look what Isaiah said. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high, upon a high and lofty throne. A high and lofty throne. I love church camp. We used to do a thing at church camp. We used to uh, induct people into the uh, uh, Royal Order of the Purple Feather. And what we'd do is we'd get one of the faculty members to set up on a table with, with a makeshift robe, which was a towel hanging over his legs. And he used to put one of the strainers on top of his head for his crown. And he had a spoon for his scepter. And the subjects would come in and they would uh, have to bow before the king and then kiss the king's ring. That was the normal thing. So the, the king had a ring that they would kiss and they would be then inducted into the royal order of the purple feather. And so as these kids were brought blindfolded in, they were then we would hold up rings in, uh, in the blindfold and we'd let them kiss that ring. And then we would have them say a certain thing, Owa, Tagu, I am, and all that stuff. They would just go through that. And then what was funny is we had, we had the faculty member who had the gosh awfulest, ugliest feet in the world. Now, they would kiss a ring that we would slip in out here. You know, it's holding it like this. But when they took the blindfold off, they were standing right in front of the king, right? With the, with the towel pulled up and the ring setting on the second toe of his, of his foot. And it really helped if that was a stinky foot. It helped a little. And the looks on their faces were, oh. oh and they would go, <laughs> oh, just, they were looking for Listerine. They were looking for anything they could. <laughs> Our king, however, there's no mistaking who he is and where he is. He's on a throne high and lifted up, high and lofty, it says. It's higher than any other throne. 
And that signifies God's superior power to exercise His authority. Isaiah 46 and verse 10, My plan will take place and I will do all my will. Daniel 4.35, He does what He wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can hold back His hand. That's your God. That's my God. Amen? We should rejoice. Praise God. But if you contrast that and put that back on us, we're simply creatures, weak because of sin. Mere specks on a smaller planet in this universe that is mind-bogglingly vast. This universe that we live in, that God created and God made. We are dependent, needing power outside ourselves. And where does this power come from? It comes from the Lord God, Maker of heaven and earth, Sustainer of all things. To be gripped by His omnipotence is either marvelous because He is for us or terrifying because He's against us. Indifference to His power simply means that we aren't paying attention. Our God reigns. Number four, God is resplendent. Keep looking in our text. I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and His robe filled the temple. Remember when Princess Diana got married and she's walking down that aisle in, in England in that big church? And How long was that train on her, on her wedding gown? I mean, that thing went... Looked like half a mile, didn't it? I don't know how in the world she pulled that thing. You've seen those. Can you grasp this one? It says, The train of His robe filled the temple. Filled the seats. Filled the choir loft. Woo! Can you imagine? God's, God's robe, just the train of His robe, would fill this whole room. Filled the entire heavenly temple. His splendor and glory are unequaled and beautiful. He's marked with dignity, wonderful to behold, regal in His majesty. Number five, God is revered. Keep reading. Seraphim were standing above Him. Each one had six wings. With two He covered His face. And with two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. No one knows what these strange six-winged creatures with feet and eyes and intelligence really are. They never appear again in the Bible, at least called seraphim. Given the grandeur of the scene and the power assigned to these angelic hosts, we don't quite picture, and it's really hard to picture, but we do try to picture cherubim, little chubby babies flying around with wings around the ears of God. Let's get away from that. Because in verse 4, when one of these seraphim speak, it says the whole foundations of the doorway shake. Now, a visual thought I have by words are the blue angels leading a presidential entourage and they come buzzing in and they, they break that sound barrier. And I mean, they're, man, that's powerful looking stuff there. I, I'm just awed, man, when they fly over the stadiums like for the Super Bowl. And they'll fly over in formation. Woo! That's, that's tough stuff. And if you're a pilot like Eric, he's over there going, <laughs> he's going, give me the stick, I should be there, I should be there. Yeah. <laughs> he does, he wants to go. I'm t he's trying to get up now and go down to Jones Airport. I bet the hardest day of his life was when he had to sell that little old plane that could barely fly. 
He bought it. Went to Canada, flew it. He didn't even have he didn't even have the the uh, guidance stuff in there. <laughs> he used he used a Tom Tom. <laughs> flew it flew it east in Canada till he got to the Rocky Mountains, and he said El Paso's at the end of this. <laughs> Just follow him straight down. He kept getting these radio calls from you know Denver Airport. Little plane, get out of here. <laughs> God's resplendent. God's revered. These, these seraphim, they're magnificent. But not only could they be magnificent in their appearance, but they couldn't look at the holiness of God. They couldn't look. They even had to cover their feet in His presence. Great and good as they are, Untainted by human sin, they revered their master with great humility. A lesson you and I could learn today. An angel terrifies a man with his brilliance and his power, but angels themselves hide in holy fear and reverence of Almighty God. Number six, God is holy. Keep, keep reading. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Finally, the word holy carries us to the edge of our language when you really talk about God. The word carries us to the brink and from there on, the experience of God is far beyond words. The reason I say that is that every effort to define the holiness of God ultimately winds up by saying something like, God is holy means God is God. Because you see, the root meaning of holy is to cut or to separate. A holy thing is cut off from and separated from common use, from secular use. Earthly things and people are, are made holy when they are distinct from the world and devoted to God. So the Bible speaks of holy ground, holy assemblies, a holy nation, holy garments, a holy city, a holy men, and holy women. And the list could go on and on and on. Almost anything can become holy if it's separated from common use and devoted to God. And devoted to God. But notice what happens when this definition is applied to God Himself. From what can you separate God to make Him holy? The very Godness of God means that He is separate from all that is not God, which means that God is one of a kind, in a class by Himself. In that sense, He is utterly holy. Which is just another way to say that God is God. He's incomparable. You can call it His divinity, His greatness, His value as the pearl of great price, but in the end, language runs out. Habakkuk 2.20 probably grabs it the most when it says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let everyone on earth be silent in His presence. There's something powerful about silence. About silence. But before the silence and the shaking of the foundations and the smoke, 
we learn a seventh final thing about God and that God is glorious. Look here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The glory of God is the demonstration of His holiness. God is glorious. It means God's holiness has gone public. God in His glory has revealed who He is. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 3, God says this, I will show my holiness to those who are near me and I will reveal my glory before all the people. When God shows Himself to be holy, we have seen God's glory. Two weeks ago, my wife was driving to work. On her way to work, she was coming up behind somebody on the turnpike and they were going too slow. As she glanced over her right shoulder to see if she could change lanes to go around the person who should have been in the right lane to start with because if you're driving slow, get in the right lane. But they were driving slow and as she turned back around to then to maneuver around the person because she had room, she was right up on them. She turned the wheel and in the instant of turning the wheel, the car went into a tailspin. And the best we can get from our witnesses that saw this is that she did about two or three donuts in the highway, then went backwards, hit a curbing, and then and flipped over on the driver's slide and slid up in the grass to a stop. Not a bone was broken. Not a scratch could be found. Not a bruise sore, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, was able to turn the key on and open the sunroof and climb out. The EMT said, I can check her vitals, but she looks fine to us. Six, seven, eight people stopped to help her. I get this call. It's her cell phone, and I, I see it on my caller ID on my cell phone. So I always answer it quickly when I see it's her. I always answer it quickly when I see it's her. <laughs> Say amen. Say, yes, Cindy, he does that. <laughs> this particular time, I did answer quickly. Because it was 9 o'clock in the morning. She should have been at work. Actually, it was just a little bit after 9. And there was a gentleman's voice on the other end of that phone. He said, your wife just had a wreck, flipped her car, but she's okay. You want to talk to her? <laughs> My initial thought was, all right, who is this? And I heard, she got on the phone, I heard her voice. I was already moving to my truck. I said, I'll be right. She says, can you come? No, oh, honey, I'm busy. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's five after nine. I'm in deep study and prayer. And, you know, God and I are right here. Nothing was more important. Am I going to her? At that moment, 
And all the way from here to the turnpike to find her car and her visions. Because when that guy said she flipped her car, I I didn't know what I was going to find. But when I got there, I was so relieved. She was sitting in the grass and talking thanking people the car was laying on his side I said thank you God thank you God because I could have been called by the highway patrol that said your wife just died I could have been called by the hospital to say your wife's on the way to the emergency room as I've said to her many times God cradled your car and just slid it up in the grass. She didn't hit anybody, and she didn't hit anything. That's the kind of God I need. That's the kind of God I need with the power to handle my problems, with the knowledge to guide me through the mazes that I face, with beauty and that, that, that captures me, and glory to command my allegiance, a God who is utterly different from me yet calls me to become like Himself. A God who forgives me and has purposes for me. A God who is there for me. Oh, oh, what unexplainable strength comes to us when in the darkest night we trust in the God of Isaiah as our God. Father, this morning, oh, I don't know, Father, who's here this morning that needs to be touched by You, but God, would they have the courage to let you touch them. God, we have a cross here in the front so they can come and just get on their knees and cry out to you. There might be somebody sitting here that's never, ever, ever gone through the Scripture and learned what it means to be saved and to be a Christian. Oh God, would they let us know so we can teach them, we can train them, we can study with them. God, there's... People have been here being Christians all their life. Long time. Long time. And they've forgotten. They've forgotten. Until a tragedy comes, how precious things are. We take them for granted. Oh God. Oh God, would you move today? In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as Corey leads us in this song.